1941, uh, a, an author who was very popular at the time named Fanny Hurst addressed a freedom rally in Cleveland, Ohio, right at, around the time shortly after World War II had broken out. And she, in her speech, she told the crowd, she told the people gathered there, that we may not be interested in this war, but it is interested in us. I'm not trying to sell it to you, but no one can evade the fact that we are in the path of the storm. That's a well-known sentiment. You might not be interested in this, but it is interested in you. It's commonly attributed to Leo Tolstoy, um, but I did some research this week, and it's actually, there's really actually no evidence that he ever said that, so I don't know why that started. But regardless of whoever first said it, it really is a true sentiment. It remains true today. The fact that this is the very nature of war. This is the very nature of evil. Evil comes whether we like it or not. Evil does not work on our schedules. We do not get to decide when the times will be hard. We do not get to tell evil when it will fight against us. And so we must be prepared to fight the battles as they come. And this is the very exhortation that Paul ends the book of Ephesians with. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Uh, this is a famous passage in the Bible known as the armor of God passage. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20. I would invite you to please stand when you've gotten there for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on, fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Paul begins our passage today with the word, Finally. Finally. That means that Paul is giving his last exhortation. And his final word, there still is one more sermon, sermon coming because he has what's called a postscript where he just kind of says his goodbye. So we still have one more sermon in Ephesians. But this really is his last word. This is his last exhortation. And his final word is a call to arms. Paul calls the church to be what some theologians have referred to as the church militant. The book of Ephesians is very much about the church of God all throughout. 
The church universal, or what we call the church Catholic, is very much a centerpiece of the book of Ephesians. And theologians will at times speak of the universal church in two different ways. Sometimes you'll hear them talk about the church triumphant, and sometimes you'll hear them talk about the church militant. The church triumphant is what we refer to as the church in glory. When all the saints have been resurrected and we meet the Lord in the air, that's when the church has her victory. That's when the church has her triumph. That is the victorious church, the church triumphant. And Ephesians 1 through 3 is really essentially a sneak peek into the future where we get a, a short little glimpse of the church triumphant, the predestined, glorified, elect people of God in all her majesty and victory. So much of the first half of Ephesians has been about the church triumphant. But what Paul does to end the, the book is he calls us back to the present. We're not there yet. The church has not been glorified yet, so we have to come back to where we are now, which is the church militant, the army of the church. We are at war. And this makes sense because you really cannot be the church triumphant without first having the church militant because there is no triumph if there was nothing to triumph over, right? There is no victory if there never was an enemy, Thus, our triumph cannot come before conflict. As we await our predestined victory, our elected glory, there is a battle to fight. And you might say, I'm not interested in fighting. I don't, I'm not interested in joining a spiritual military. I did not sign up for this. I don't want to fight. And let me tell you what Paul has already told us in this text. You might not be interested in warfare. But it is interested in you. We must fight. It's not optional. It's coming for us whether we like it or not. And so what Paul does in this passage to help us in our church militant fight, in our conflict, in our struggle, is he tells us two things about our warfare. He gives us the nature of our warfare and he gives us the weapons of our warfare. The nature of our warfare and the weapons of our warfare. What kind of war are we fighting? We need to know that. And then once we know that, then he can help determine, so what kind of weapons do we need for that kind of warfare? What's the nature of our warfare and what are the weapons of our warfare? So let's look at what Paul says is the nature of our warfare. He tells us very explicitly in verse 12. Read verse 12 with me. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If, 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 if we're in a battle, if, if I've just said that the Christian church is actually an army, we're actually a military, then does that mean that all of us need to go take up arms and head to the streets? Start burning Roswell to the ground? shooting our enemies, killing our neighbors. No, that is not the kind of warfare we're engaged in. Paul is very clear. We are not engaged in carnal warfare. Your neighbor is not ultimately your enemy. That's not the kind of warfare we are engaged in. So what is the nature of our warfare? As Paul tells us in verse 12, it is spiritual. The Christian church is engaged in spiritual warfare. 
However, now, spiritual warfare will still involve, to some degree, the material world. It will still involve the physical realm. But nonetheless, our ultimate enemy is spiritual. And so, to best understand this, we need to be reminded of a couple Christian basics. These are basic, but it's good to be reminded. The first thing, in order to understand Paul, we need to be reminded of is that we belong to both a physical and a non-physical realm. We belong to a physical and an immaterial realm. Theologians will oftentimes refer to the material realm as the unseen realm. Our physical material world has an unseen element to it. I like to tell people there is far more to the world you live in than meets the eye. There's far more happening in your daily life than meets the eye. There is an unseen realm. In other words, I'm trying to remind you of a very basic principle that Christians are not materialists. Atheists are materialists. They think that only material things exist. Only matter exists. Christians are not materialists. We do not believe that the only things that exist are things that you can fit into a test tube or things that can illuminate underneath a microscope. Things like God, things like love, things like the laws of logic, these are non-material things that we affirm as real. The scriptures teach us that there is an entire immaterial realm that interacts with our world, one we cannot see. Our text designates this metaphorically as the heavenly places. He did this, by the way, earlier in chapter 1. This is the second time Paul has referred to this spiritual realm as the heavenly places. The heavenly places is Paul's name for the unseen realm, the non-material realm where spiritual beings inhabit. There is a spiritual unseen realm all around us, and our warfare is primarily uh, concerned with that realm and with those beings, with those spirits. And so this is why, to go back to the joke I started off with, uh, Christians do not believe in raging, waging Christian crusades. Um, it is a mistake to open up your Bible and read jo like, like a book like Joshua and then think, okay, so our job as the people of God then must be to go into other nations and slaughter everybody and take the land for Christ, right? The New Testament does not give us permission to do that. We are facing a different kind of warfare than Joshua was commanded to fight. The kind of enemies that we are up against are enemies that cannot be conquered with swords and guns. But there is a relationship between the two, though. Uh, so spiritual warfare can be seen as sort of the fulfillment of the type of physical warfare. So we do, we do still relate to Old Testament war passages through our spiritual warfare. So this is why, for example, we can still read and sing and pray psalms which have warfare analogies. We can still ask God through the psalms to overthrow our enemies, to shatter the teeth of our enemies, to subdue them under our feet. That's all throughout the Old Testament. We can still pray that. We can still sing those songs. The only difference is we now have a spiritual application of those psalms. But even though the, the, now we fight a spiritual warfare, we have this in common with the Old Testament saints that we are still at war. 
And we still must call upon God to be our mighty fortress and to stomp our enemies under our feet and dash them against the rocks. The spiritual ones. So that's the first thing you need to remember is that there is an unseen spiritual realm. There is more to this world than meets the eye. The second thing you need to remember is that within this realm, there is the literal existence of angels and of Satan and his demons. The spiritual realm is inhabited by spiritual beings that we commonly refer to as angels. Now, Paul here refers them to rulers, cosmic powers, authorities. That's actually the common way the New Testament refers to the angelic beings who rule the spiritual realm. This is just classic New Testament language for spiritual beings or for angels. So Paul is telling us that our warfare is spiritual, which means that we are at war with angels. We are at war with angels. Now, this language is usually not just used of angels broadly, but of a specific kind of angels. Angels that we oftentimes refer to as fallen angels. These are angels who have rebelled from their God-given authorities, rebelled from their original innocence, rebelled from their original glory, and have chosen to follow Satan in warring against God and against God's people. And so we commonly refer to fallen angels as what? Demons and devils. And, and, and that's appropriate. The Bible refers to fallen angels as demons and devils. So that's not just a cultural thing. But nonetheless, what I don't want us to lose when we use words like demon and devil, I don't want us to lose the fact that the demons and the devils are nonetheless spiritual angelic beings. They are still ontologically angels. That's what we mean by fallen angel. It is a demon. And our fight in this world is ultimately with the demons and with the prince of the demons, Satan. We are at war with a literal Satan and his literal demons. And I say literal because the liberal wings of theology have been fighting desperately for decades to teach people that Satan and demons are just metaphors in Scripture. Not real beings, but they just sort of personifications of, of evil, generally speaking. But a passage like this is impossible to make sense of with just a metaphoric general evil. We are at war with actual, literal authorities, with powers, with beings, with seats of consciousness, if you will. In other words, I'm telling you that the Apostle Paul knew and believed that Satan, otherwise known as the devil, otherwise known as the adversary, otherwise known as the accuser, otherwise known as the evil one, he really exists. The Apostle Peter knew this too, by the way. This is why he was able to warn Christians in 1 Peter 1. Whoops, went too fast, sorry. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter knew that there was a real devil, a real Satan, who is interested in you. You might not be interested in him, but he is interested in you. He comes at you like a hungry, angry lion. Satan and demons do exist. And their spiritual power over this world is significant. They have a significant, terrifying, real, literal power and influence over our material realm. So if our enemy is spiritual, 
If our, the nature of our warfare is spiritual, and if our enemy is as powerful as Paul implies, right? he refers to them as the cosmic powers, the authorities, the angels. We are not going up against a bunch of schmucks. And these are enemies so powerful that our carnal weapons don't work. I hate to break it to you, but Satan is not intimidated by your AR-15. These are powerful forces. So if, if, if our warfare is spiritual and our enemy is incredibly powerful, then we need a new kind of weapon. How are we going to fight? This is terrifying, right? Swords and guns will not help us in a spiritual battle. And so it sounds like we need spiritual weapons. And Paul explicitly affirms this elsewhere in the Bible, saying in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So in order to destroy false thoughts, in order to take thoughts captive, in order to fight against non-carnal enemies, the weapons of our warfare need to be spiritual. They need a divine power. And that's why he tells us, by the way, in verse 10, what strength, where do we get our strength to fight demonic forces from? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let me tell you something. If you try to go to war with Satan in your own strength, you're losing every time. He's smarter than you. He's more powerful than you. He is far more evil than you are good. You lose every time. We need spiritual power. We need divine power. I don't want weapons manufactured on earth. I want ma weapons manufactured in heaven. And so if our warfare is spiritual, then that leads us to this question. Has God, in the strength of his might, equipped us for a spiritual battle? And the Apostle Paul emphatically em emphasizes, yes. He has equipped us. So that leads us to the weapons of our warfare. Paul does something helpful though. Spiritual realities are hard to conceptualize for us material beings. So he uses a big long metaphor. He takes a Roman soldier. Uh, maybe it's more helpful for us to think of like a knight in shining armor. But nonetheless, he takes a Roman soldier and he takes the weapons that Rome equipped their soldiers for and then use them metaphorically to help us conceptualize and conceive of our spiritual armor. So God has given us a spiritual armor, which Paul sort of metaphorically compares to carnal armor. Now, um, before we really dive into these things, it's important... Uh, don't read too much in to the individual connections. You'll, you'll read some theologians and some commentaries doing that. Like in other words, why is one the helmet and why is one the shield? And, and, and these big speculative philosophies will come out explaining this. But I'm going to tell you it's actually mostly arbitrary. The connections, with few exceptions, are mostly arbitrary. Uh, one of the reasons I know this, by the way, is because if, they, if the individual connection was so important, then Paul would never change it. But he does change it. Um, as a matter of fact, and I don't have it on the screen, in 1 Thessalonians 5, there Paul describes faith and love as our breastplate. But here, righteousness is our breastplate. 
right? So if the connections were so important, he wouldn't change them. So the, the, the individual connections are mostly arbitrary. Paul is just trying to make a loose metaphor. For He's just trying to say in the same way that Rome equips their soldiers for war, God equips you. That's all he's trying to say. So let's not read too much into them. But nonetheless, let's look at the weapons of our warfare. What weapons do we have to fight a spiritual battle against a ferocious enemy? The first weapon we fight with is the weapon of truth. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. We must fight with the weapon of truth. We must be girdled with truth. We will never defeat our foe with the wisdom of men. We will never defeat our foe with unbiblical speculations of science and philosophy. We will never defeat our foe with the lies of the secular age, the very ones that he invented and put in to our secular age. We need truth. Truth is a powerful thing. You should never, ever, ever underestimate the power of truth. Being willing to speak the truth at all costs is an incredibly effective weapon. And the beautiful thing is this is a weapon no enemy could ever take from you. No one can force you to surrender the truth. They can persecute you. They can punish you. But no one can make you say lies. No one can make you believe lies. Trust me, we've been seeing for a long time, our culture is very interested in getting us to affirm and celebrate lies. And it is not loving to our neighbors and it is not advancing the gospel to affirm those lies, to believe those lies, or to accept those lies. We have an incredibly powerful weapon on our side. Say true things. Do not surrender the truth. Paul told us earlier in Ephesians, to speak truth to your neighbor. Satan, the Bible calls, is the father of lies. Lying is his weapon. Truth is our weapon. We combat Satan and demons by being people of truth, especially divine truth. Fight your battle with truth. But we have a second weapon in this verse, we also have what I'm calling holiness. And I'll explain why in a second. Verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul refers to our next weapon as righteousness. Now I'm calling it holiness because the Bible talks about two different kinds of righteousnesses. And I think holiness helps clarify. Um, sometimes the Bible will talk about a subjective righteousness which is your literal own personal growth and holiness, your sanctification. Are you a good person? That's your righteousness. It's subjective to you. But the Bible will also talk about an objective righteousness. And this is the righteousness that every believer receives by faith. As Philippians 2 calls the righteousness apart from the law, from God, which we receive by faith. So there's a sense in which everyone in this room, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, are perfectly equal in righteousness in the objective sense. In the eyes of God we're all forgiven. We're all clean. But in a subjective sense we're all at different places. And I think Paul is referring to the subjective sense here. I think Paul is referring to actually personally walking in holiness living good lives is an incredibly powerful weapon against evil. 
the fact remains the Bible testifies all throughout both Old and New Testament that a fast track to apostasy, a fast track to spiritual death is to live in sin. Callously living in sin always leads to spiritual death. As John Owen, one, this is probably John Owen's most famous quote. I've quoted it probably three or four times since I've been pastor here. John Owen's famous quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You never remain neutral. You're either progressing or decreasing. Sin is terrible. And so the strongest way we can fight against demons, we can fight against an evil culture, we can fight against sin, is to live godly lives, to be righteous. In other words, I'm trying to ask you to never underestimate how brightly the light of your holy life can shine in a dark place. And again, this is another weapon no one can take from you. They can mock you. They can imprison you. They can torture you. They can even kill you. But they cannot make you sin. So obey God. And in the process, destroy devils. We fight with holiness. We have another weapon. This one's going to take some explaining. Uh, you might be confused as to why I use this word. But I, I think this captures the thought. I think our third weapon is courage. Our third weapon is courage. Look at verse 15 with me. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, I think there's some potentially confusing grammar here. And I think it clarifies Paul's overall point to call it courage. Christians have to take on the world with hope with optimism, with courage. And, and, and we know this just through natural theology and experience. We have a lot of veterans in here, and you can ask a veteran how easy it is to win a war if none of your soldiers are courageous. If your army lacks courage, how easy is it to win that battle? And I think what Paul is telling us in this verse is that we have reason to go into the fight with nothing but courage, nothing but hope, nothing but optimism, or as the text says, a readiness. We have, we have readiness on our feet. We're not paralyzed in fear. When you're afraid, you're paralyzed. You don't move your feet. You're deer in the headlights. You're scared. But when you're unafraid, when you're courageous, you're nimble, you're agile, you're ready to go. And we have the readiness uh, on our feet. Readiness is our shoes. And I think a, a good way to, to encompass that within the warfare analogy is to call it confidence. We're ready. I'm ready for the fight. I'm not afraid. Just tell me where to go, sir. I'll go. I'm ready to move. We have a readiness, we have a courage that makes us nimble, makes us confident in our fight. And where do we get this courage from that we put on our feet? Where do we get this readiness that we strap onto our feet? Where does it come from? And Paul says, the gospel of peace. The gospel is our courage to fight. The gospel has made peace between men and God. The gospel is making peace between men and men. In other words, we go into a battle knowing we've got the powerful weapon. We're the ones with the sophisticated technology on our side. We're the ones with the master plan on our side. How encouraging, how much hope and confidence should that give you to fight? We have the gospel. The enemy doesn't. I'm ready for war now. I know I'm winning now. I've got the gospel. I've got the ultimate weapon. 
The gospel gives us confidence. And so what I think that means is that I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, please do not go to war afraid. Please do not fight the Christian life with pessimism and discouragement. I understand that from a worldly perspective, we have good reason to be pessimistic and discouraged. After these last week elections, I was very pessimistic and very discouraged. And then by God's grace, I had to go to work and I had to open up this text and I had to be reminded, I have the gospel. Our country can't vote the gospel into oblivion. God's people have been in hard places in the past, but the gospel has triumphed and it will triumph again. So please, there is reason to be angry. There's reason to be sad. Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. But your general disposition, do not be a pessimistic Christian. Do not be paralyzed with fear and discouragement. Put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. Let's go to war. We're going to win this thing. We're going to win. We overcome the paralyzing nature of fear by fighting with the courage we get from the gospel. Fight with courage. That's our third weapon. Our fourth weapon is the weapon of faith. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If we do not believe in Jesus, we cannot be in him. Faith is how you are in Christ. And verse 10 says we have to be in Christ, in the Lord, in order to receive the strength from the Lord or of the Lord. So if you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not have faith in the promises of Jesus, if you do not have faith in the promises of God, you can't conquer Satan. You cannot win that battle. And again, I ask rhetorically, how many soldiers have survived battles when they fought the entire time believing that their leadership was incompetent? How many soldiers have fought battles when they've had no faith that the plan can actually be executed rightly? If you don't have faith in your commanders, if you don't have faith in your plan, you can't win. And you don't even have to be a military vet to get this. I mean, even if you've played sports, how many teams go in and get a victory when they think their coaches are morons and their game plan is a losing game plan? How many teams win games when they think they can't win? Right? Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that we have a confident Lord who is our anchor and our defender? Do you believe that we have a mighty fortress? Trust in God. Trust the promises of Christ. Trust the promises of his word. Put your faith in Christ and in his promises. And that faith, believing on Christ and believing in his promises, that is a faith that will overcome anything the world throws at you. The Apostle of John would agree with the Apostle Paul on this. He told us this in 1 John 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You want to overcome the world? You want to overcome the spiritual forces of the world? Trust in Christ. Trust Christ. We fight this war with faith. That's our fourth weapon. Our fifth weapon is the weapon of salvation. Look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. We stop there. There are few things that will overthrow evil like the assurance that Christ has saved you. 
In this context, you can see why the the doctrine of what we call the assurance of salvation, meaning I am assured that I am saved. Can you be assured that you're saved? This was actually a crucial debate point in the Protestant Reformation. The, the Reformers believed that this doctrine was important enough to fight and split over. The Reformers believed, the Roman Catholic Church said, denied this. They said, you cannot be assured of your salvation. The Reformers pushed back and said, yes, it is possible and we need to get there. It's an important aspect of the Christian life. And I think a passage like this helps us see why. Because let me ask you this question. How can salvation be used as a weapon if you don't even know you have it? How can you use a weapon you don't know you have? This is why soldiers, when they go off to basic training, one of the first things they have to learn is how to use your weapon. You need, you need to be skilled. You need to have the weapon. You need to possess it. You need to know you have it before you can ever put it into use. If you're just clueless, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. I don't have a clue. How is that a helmet? Ironically, many people who want to deny the assurance of salvation, the reason they do so is because they think that it gives people a license to sin. Right? Like, if I live my life saying, listen, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I can just do whatever I want now. I can just live in sin now. They reason that you will lose your ambition to live a holy life and try to honor God if you just, you just know you're saved. But Paul reasons exactly opposite. Not only is our salvation not an excuse to sin, it's actually a powerful tool we possess against sin. Salvation is a weapon against sin, against demons, against evil influences. We don't need to think that we're damned in order to gain a motivation to fight against sin. To the contrary, we need to believe that we are saved to put up a successful fight. So in this sense, this isn't true in every nuance of the term, but in, in a certain sense, you could almost think of it this way. We do not fight for our salvation. We fight with our salvation. I think, by the way, I think we actually see this figured in the book of Revelation. Look at this interesting passage in Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How has Satan been conquered? How has Satan been overthrown? By salvation. You say, well, what does that mean? What specifically has silenced the accuser? The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, what shuts Satan up? The fact that Christ has forgiven your sins and you confess his lordship. Your salvation, faith in salvation, faith in forgiveness has silenced the accuser. We sing about this, by the way, in one of my favorite songs, Before the Throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? I believe him. I must not be saved. I better go work for it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We fight the, ac the accuser by knowing the accusations have been forgiven. Not that they might be, that they have been. You fight with your salvation. Salvation overthrows 
the evil one. Weapon number six, I'm calling it evangelism. Look at verse 17 with me. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What's interesting about weapon number six is that this is our only offensive weapon. So far, it's all been armor. It's all been defensive. Now, he puts a sword in our hands. He gives us something to fight back with. And it is, as he tells us explicitly, the sword is the word of God. This is a a powerful metaphor in the Bible. The author of Hebrews uses it too in Hebrews 4. He says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword. It is no match. There is nothing on earth that can stop the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, so use it. Memorize God's word. Study God's word and preach it. Tell it to people. In other words, please do not sheath your swords during warfare. You know, you've you've probably heard the old expression, you you know, you never want to bring a a gun to a knife fight, or a knife to a gunfight. In many ways, we don't want to bring a, a carnal weapon to a spiritual weapon to a spiritual fight. I don't want you to show up in a spiritual fight without a sword or with your sword put away. Bring your sword out. People want to tell you, well, you can't use the word of God with your enemies because they don't believe in the word of God. What are they telling you? Put your sword away. Bring your bare knuckles to a demonic fight. I don't want to do that. Take your swords out. I I have a fun example of this. Um, I'm so thankful I got to ask my wife about this. I don't have time for this, but I'm just going to cram it in anyway. Uh, I made these little custom gospel tracks for Halloween. So I was really disappointed. I don't know what the deal is with my neighborhood, but we saw like two kids the entire night, so I didn't really get to hand them out. But uh, I made like a, a happy Halloween and an invitation to come to church on one side, and then I, I shared the gospel on the back. And before I printed them, I, I, God gave me the wisdom to show my wife. And she read it, and I could tell she wasn't thrilled with it. And I was like, How are, what's going on here? Like, I'm preaching the gospel to our neighbors, and you're being a pessimist. What's going on here? She said, there's no Bible verses. I said, well, I mean, what I'm saying is the message of the Bible. Like, I'm, I'm sharing the message of the Bible. And she said, I don't know. I, I just feel like there's something powerful with the Word of God. I, th- I think you need to put a, a scripture on it. So I edited it. I went and I added some scripture and put some scripture. And I'm so thankful that I did. Because it's the Word of God that pierces the hearts of men. We need the word of God. And the reason I'm calling this evangelism is because when we stab people with God's word, metaphorically speaking, that's how I define evangelism. Like evangelism is when you tell people what God has said and done. To tell someone the word of God is to evangelize. And so I think the the way to encompass this weapon is we fight with evangelism. How do you wield the sword? You preach the gospel to the lost. You tell people God's word. You want to win this war? You want to turn our nation around? Preach the gospel. Evangelize your neighbor. We fight demons when we tell our neighbors about Jesus, when we preach the word of God to the lost. Evangelize. Now, I'm going to say that there's a seventh weapon. Oh, forgive me. I didn't mean to go back to that. Um, uh, most people would stop the weapons here because Paul drops the military analogy at this point. Uh, so there's no more military analogy coming. But I really do think 
that the next thing he talks about, he's still giving us warfare strategy. He's still telling us about an important tool we have to fight. So even though he's cut off the military analogy, I'm going to continue it. And I think he gives us a seventh weapon in verse 18. Look at what he says. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul has given us the weapon of prayer. Now, prayer can be an interesting weapon because it can be an offensive weapon, right? Praying for someone's conversion or praying the Lord to conquer your enemies. But here, Paul is primarily using it as a defensive weapon. We pray for other fighters. We pray for our fellow soldiers. We pray and make supplication for all of the saints. So if you, if you need a metaphor, I like to think of prayer in this context as like a, a medical first aid kit used on the battlefield. Prayer is how we tend to each other's wounds, how we help each other and we keep each other going. In other words, Paul is recognizing that no one soldier fights war alone. Armies fight wars and the Christian militant church is no different. We are soldiers individually, but we make up one army. In other words, we are brothers in arms. Each one of us needs help and the prayers of the saints is how we help each other. This is why we make time in our services to pray for the nations. To pray for our government, that's an offensive weapon. Change them, convert them. But then we pray for the persecuted church. That's a defensive weapon. Help them, tend their wounds, keep them going. We pray for the advancement of the kingdom. Prayer is how we fight. Paul certainly believed prayer was effectual. Paul believes that prayer works. Notice because after praying, telling us to pray for all the saints, he, he breaks off and he begs for personal prayer. Look at verses 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I think this is remarkable. The great apostle Paul was worried he might shrink away. He was worried, worried I might not have the courage to do my job. In other words, I'm trying to comfort you. I just told you to fight with evangelism. That's scary. It was scary for Paul too. You're not alone in being overwhelmed by the thought of having to preach the gospel to your neighbor. It scared Paul too. And that's why Paul said, I need your prayers. Pray so that God might give me the courage and the words to speak as I am in prison. You see, the world loves to mock this principle. I see this every time there's some kind of natural disaster. And Christians offer their prayers and they're mocked. Because prayers don't work. We don't need your prayers. We need you to do something. Right? The world mocks prayer. But what I found interesting is that even when people reject Christian prayer, the, the natural programming that God has put in us still shouts and tells us that there is a God who hears us and answers prayers. And so that's why usually secular people can never totally shake prayer. They just have to come up with secular pagan prayer. They just start praying to the universe instead of God. So they don't offer prayers. They're way too enlightened for that. They're way too smart for that. So instead, they'll offer you their thoughts and positive vibes. My thoughts are with you. Sending positive vibes your way. That's prayer. And it's Satan's favorite kind. Satan loves those prayers. Satan hears those prayers. Satan answers those prayers. 
You see, everyone's going to fight with prayer. We fight with effectual prayer, with true prayer. Prayer to the living God. It works. It's effectual. Please do not neglect it. You want to know why our nation is in such shambles? I think maybe one of the reasons is because the American church is not a church of prayer. To conclude, I just want to simply steal another expression from Paul. I think we could summarize this big long message up into one phrase from a different letter of Paul. Fight the good fight. Wage spiritual war against sin and Satan. Stand strong in battle. Courageously speak the truth. Walk in holiness. Trust the promises of God. Remember your salvation. Evangelize the lost. And pray for all of the saints. 